thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, UCBS. I'm quite excited about this story. Apparently, we might be redefining kilogram, which hopefully will mean that actually I weigh less than I think. (laughs) I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but yes. This week, scientists have been meeting in Versailles at a very important conference to consider and almost certainly will vote in favour of a redefinition of what we call a kilogram. Now, the present kilogram we've had for a long time. Um, In fact, it dates to 1889 because people got together around the world and said, look, we need some kind of standardisation. So we all agree on what we're dealing with when we're talking about weights and measures and so on. So initially, a kilo was one litre of water. Now, it's obvious that you can't work like that because one day water might be a bigger volume than another because of thermal expansion and so on. And so actually the definition of the kilogram would wander all over the place. So then they replaced the kilo of water with this blob of metal. And Le Grand K, which is the king kilogram, sits in Paris. Mm. And it's this hunk of platinum iridium. And it's in three bell jars, one inside the other. And from that, 40 clones have been made and given to different countries around the world. There's one sitting at the National Physical Laboratory in London. And those are used as the gold standard, if that's the right word to use, of what we call a kilogram. Now, the problem is every time you get it out to give it a clean off and polish it up, you knock a few atoms off. And that's obviously going to affect the the mass. And when it attracts some pollution from the air, it's gaining a few atoms and that's going to change the mass. So what scientists are saying is... We need to redefine the kilogram in terms of an invariant measure. So they're going to use something called a kibble balance, which was designed in, I think, the 1970s by the person after whom it's named, kibble. And this uses electromotive force. Essentially, you create an electromagnetic force to lift a mass equivalent to what we want to call a kilogram. And that then enables us to define what the kilogram is. So scientists are voting this week to change the definition of a kilogram away from a hunk of metal sitting in Paris to a proper invariant electromotive force. And that will become the definition henceforth, because people are saying if aliens turn up here in future and they ask us about our definition for mass and we show them a hunk of metal, we'll be the laughing stock of the galaxy, apparently. So we need a decent definition in order to wow would-be E.T. I love it. Stunning. Shah, good morning. Welcome to the show. What's your question? Morning, CBS. Uh, morning, Dr. Chris. Uh, the, my question is, you know, when... Uh, well, now it's mosquito season. You've got a whole lot of mosquitoes. When your lights are on... You'll see them sitting on the ceiling. But as soon as you switch it off, they suddenly buzz around. And, and my other question is, how, how do they know they must come to your ear? Yeah. Oh, they're a real pain, aren't they? They're they're a real nightmare. Uh, The answer to this is that uh, different species of mosquito actually have different behaviour. Some of the species of mosquito, they're active in the day. Other species of mosquito are night active. 
the malaria-spreading mosquitoes, which are the anopheline mosquitoes, they tend to become active at night. They also tend to go into people's houses. Aedes groups of mosquitoes, they're active during the day and they stay outside for the most part. So it's effectively hardwired into their biology. The way in which the insect nervous system operates means that when they see light, they either go to sleep or they become active accordingly. Now, how they track you down is a really interesting thing because mosquitoes have these antennae sticking out of their heads and those antennae are effectively their noses. Those antennae are bedecked with sprays of fine nerve endings on the end of which are chemical docking stations called receptors and they are capable of detecting tiny amounts of the chemicals that come off your skin and are breathed out by you in the air. And because they have two of them, the mosquitoes fly backwards and forwards and they're sniffing and resolving across their antennae whether the concentration is going up or down of some of these chemicals. And in that way, they can fly towards the source of those chemicals and they track you down. And they do it because that way they're going to get a meal because the source of those chemicals is things like carbon dioxide, which you breathe out, and other sweet-smelling chemicals and volatiles that come off your skin. So these mosquitoes are using smell and temperature because they're also thermally sensitive to find where you are and then come and land on you and take a meal. And depending upon whether they are one species or another, they'll do it more at night or they'll do it more during the day. I'll take one from Twitter, Chris. I might get the pronunciation wrong. Let's see whether you understand me anyway. Here's one from Humphrey. Humphrey says, I was wondering how muons reach the Earth's surface since they have a short lifespan. Okay, hello, Humphrey. First of all, what's a muon? A muon's like a heavy electron. This is a negatively charged particle which has the same charge on it as an electron but is more massive. So if you could weigh one of them, it would weigh more than an electron but would otherwise be an electron. Now, these are made via various sources and they come raining in on the Earth from space because they're a cosmic particle. They're, they're made by various things in space. They come in at very high energy and at very high speed. The fact is, yes, there's an atmosphere here and the atmosphere of the Earth will soak some of them up, but many of them still make it down to the Earth. Enough, in fact, are making it down to the Earth's surface that we can detect them and we can even use them to see inside buildings because researchers have now done a number of studies where they have put a detector for muons underneath or behind a big building. In Mexico, they did this with the Pyramid of the Sun, I think it's called. And there's a void inside there. And they wanted to know, without digging a big hole through the pyramid, what was in that void, if anything. And by putting the muon detector beneath the building, they could use the muons to image that void. Because in some places, they're going to be more absorbed than others. So you'll see an area corresponding to where the void is, where the muons have been less attenuated or soaked up than other places. So some do make it, enough make it that we can use them for useful things. So that's how they use them and that's why they're here. Here's a voice note. I think we've got a question via the voice notes uh, line. Eusebius, I have a question for Mr. Scientist. I've always had this notion that people that have been partners for a very, very long time end up looking the same. So I was just wondering, could it be because of the mere fact that we are so used to seeing them together all the time that they end up looking alike? Or could it be possibly that these people have been together for such a long time sharing things like saliva from the kissing, <laughs> the sexual juices from the intercourse, and this thing is happening so repetitively that some genetic appearance 
sort of alters and becomes the same. <laughs> Chris, we're going to do something. I just wanted to know that. <laughs> thank, you, Mr. thank you, Mr. Voice. So we're going to do something unusual. We'll combine two questions. So that's one question from one listener. I'm going to put another on. It's not quite the same, but it's, uh, if you like, thematically similar. Justin, what is your question? Yeah, my son, he looks like he does. I know what my son now looks like. But say another sperm cell got it. Say that sperm cell what made him didn't get it. Say another one on the other side got into the egg. Will my son still look like he does now? Or will he look pretty different? I'll listen to the on the radio. Thank you. Okay, family resemblances and lover resemblances. <laughs> Discuss. Well, people talk about people looking a bit like their pets as well, don't they? Yes. Um, and I'm sure yes. they're not having sex with them. But I uh, well, hope they're not. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think it's because of people having sex and kissing each other that makes people look alike, because otherwise all the French would look alike, because French people are always kissing each other all over the place. So I, I don't think it's, it's the exchange of juices and that kind of thing that makes you look alike. I think it's more that, uh, as the person suggests, people who tend to hang around together are more likely to wear the same things, do the same things, be seen in the same contexts, probably maybe even share clothes. And certainly they'll share interests. And this might make you think that they look a bit like each other. Also, there's the question of why were they attracted to each other in the first place? Because there is a suggestion that we, we tend to, if you're a lady, look for someone who maybe has a, a bit in common with your dad. And um, and maybe you as a man might choose a woman who looks a bit like your, your own mum. And so in, respect, in some respects, there will be some kind of innate genetic tendency to end up looking a bit like each other in that regard. But uh, to be honest... That's me largely flanneling because I haven't seen any scientific evidence to support this notion. So if anyone has any better data, please let us know. Now, the other question, which is, why do we look the way we do and why do we have a family resemblance? The reason is that when you make a baby, you take an egg from mum and a sperm from dad. The sperm has got half of the dad's chromosomes. The egg has got half of the mum's chromosomes. The rationale is that when you put the two together, you get a complete set of the chromosomes. But any of your children who's really yours is half genetically identical to you. And the vast majority of the genes in your DNA are used in patterning the way your face and head puts itself together because the face and the head is so complicated in the nervous system that it uses the vast majority of the genes in your genome. Therefore, given that you have half of your genetic information in common with your child, a very large number of your genes are going to be involved in, in making them look the way they do, therefore they look like you. And there's an argument that genetically that we do that because also if kids look like us, it means that we are left in no doubt as to who our children are and therefore parents are more likely to be protective around their children because they know they're theirs. Frida, good morning. Uh, good morning. Um, I would like to know if the leaves under the strawberries have any nutritional value or if whether they're edible or not. I've always wondered about that. Have you ever Hello? tried them, Frida? No, I haven't tried. <laughs> I'm scared of being poisoned. <laughs> Chris? I would like to try them okay. if um, Christmas will tell me that Hi, they're Frida. not poisonous. Frida, they don't seem to poison the slugs and snails in my garden. So I think on that basis, they're not that bad. Um, no, seriously, they're just modified leaves and they won't do you any harm. Uh, they're, they're no problem at all. Um, the strawberry itself is just flesh of a strawberry plant, leaves of flesh of the strawberry plant. You, you won't pick up any nasty chemicals by eating the few little bits of leaf that, that cling to the top of a strawberry. They look nice. They look decorative. They don't taste that great. They're not as nice as the strawberries, which is why people tend to chop them off, but they're not going to kill you.
Tapello, good morning and thank you so much for calling in. What's your question for the yes, naked scientist? Um, I'm fascinated by this thing that you be sitting somewhere eating and then maybe you drop a piece of meat or uh, yep. something in the street. Then all of a sudden you'll just see ants from nowhere coming and then join the party with you. Well, how do they get to smell or detect that there's something that they like? Okay. For anyone who didn't hear the question clearly, Tapelo wants to know why is it when you have just a morsel of something sweet on the floor and these ants come out of nowhere? A bit like the mosquitoes are extremely good at tracking down their lunch mm. in the form of a human or, or an animal because mm. mosquitoes pick on animals too. Ants also have antennae and they are very sensitive to chemicals and as ants go out of their nest they explore they lay down a trail behind them of a chemical called a pheromone and they deposit this pheromone in a low concentration on the floor. They do it for two reasons. One, it means that they can find their own way home to their nest. And two, it means that their nest mates can follow them. And so these ants go out exploring. And as soon as they encounter something which they think uh, would be worth carting off back to their nest, then they go home, reinforcing the chemical trail as they do so, and they then recruit all their mates to come. And this is why ants and other social insects are so successful, because they can recruit very large numbers of individuals to do a joint effort doing something and achieving a task in very short amounts of time. So all of the other nest uh, nest mates will come out of the nest, follow the chemical trail laid down by the first ant, or the first group of ants that encountered the food, and then they will come out, take a bit of it away, take it back to the nest and either feed it to the other ants in the nest or store it in the, in the nest and they'll keep doing that till all the food is gone and that's uh, why they're so successful. Terry, good morning to you. Chris, it's uh, a question. You said we started it yesterday um, <laughs> about uh, God. Does God exist? Well, it's nice to have an easy question for this part of the program. Uh, the answer, Terry, is well, we, we don't know. And the thing is that this is a religious question rather than a scientific question. And nothing I've really ever encountered doing science is, is at odds with religion and vice versa. So I think the two are actually quite compatible. And, and I'm quite fond of citing the example of one of the fathers or the founding fathers of our whole idea of the birth of the universe and the expansion of the universe, Lemaitre was a Belgian priest. And he was very comfortable with the idea of a Big Bang because for him that was a moment of creation when the universe got formed. So in some respects you could say, well, the universe got formed about 13.8 billion years ago. Before that it didn't exist and after it was formed everything existed. So that was a moment of creation. Did God do that? Well, we don't know. We just don't understand enough about the universe we live in and and the other dimensions that are inevitably out there for us to have any kind of insight into what, what is and isn't there. So at the moment it's an open question. And there are many scientists who are excellent philosophers and scientists, even in recent years, including biochemists like Michael Behe with Darwin's Black Box. So there is compatibility there, but I did start something yesterday, Chris, so thanks for helping me out there. <laughs> Ali, good morning. What is your question for Chris? Dr. Chris, simple question. Uh, why is there anyone who has not invented a, a, a conditioner that uses solar power? If there's anyone, I need the rest to the patents right. <laughs> Solar-powered aircons, do they exist? Well, the thing is that solar energy exists and aircon units are consumers of energy, so you could easily make a solar-powered air conditioner. The problem is that air conditioning uses huge amounts of energy and it's not practical unless you have an enormous array of solar panels to make a very simple, compact, domestic 
solar-powered air conditioner because the um, average air conditioner is probably running at between 2 and 4 kilowatts and the amount you'll get off of a solar array, unless it's quite a big one, isn't going to be sufficient to drive the aircon unit sufficiently hard unless you've got, as I say, a very big solar array. So part of it is the amount of uh, energy that the air conditioner is using. The second is that when do people want to use their air conditioners? They want to use them so they can get a good night's sleep. And, of course, the sun doesn't shine at night, assuming they're going to bed at night. So then you've got a problem with, well, how do you make enough energy during the day to run your aircon unit and store enough energy so that you can then also run it at night sustainably? So it hasn't been solved quite yet, but it has been solved in the sense that people do use solar power. There is a rising trend towards photovoltaic generation, but it's uh, certainly not practical as a 100% solution because the sun only shines half the time. Okay, interesting. Mike, good morning. Hi, you see this? Hello. I just want to ask uh, the naked scientist something. He must please explain to me, like I'm in uh, grade six, what is spooky action at a distance, <laughs> as uh, Einstein puts it. I'll listen on the radio. Thank you. Hello. Well, well, this was the whole point about quantum entanglement, the whole idea that if you've got two two particles, let's say a light particle, a photon, emerges from a source and you take one photon and send it in one direction and the, its uh, brother-sister photon goes in the opposite direction, these two things born at a source have some kind of entanglement. They're in some way uh, joined at the hip, but they're remote from each other. What you do to one thing seems to affect the outcome for the other. So even though the two things are not in direct contact and they might be on the opposite sides of the universe, what happens to one thing can affect the other. And Einstein dubbed this spooky action at a distance. The whole idea that uh, you can have the universe between two things and they're still nonetheless linked um, was confusing. And it still is. It's baffling. How does this happen? We know it happens. Um, we, we know this occurs, but we don't know why. And it's like Niels Bohr said, um, if you didn't uh, get completely baffled by quantum mechanics, then you didn't understand it. Okay, thank you, Mike. Vasco, good morning. Uh, good morning. My question is, I know that when things burn, most things when it's burnt, it turns black. I need to know why it turns black. Why not green or blue or yellow? But most things turn black when it's burnt. Okay, well, first of all, what's, what, what is combustion? Mm. Well, combustion, mm. when we burn things, we're taking vapours from the thing that's burning. Heat and those vapours are at a high temperature. They mix with usually oxygen from the air because oxygen makes up a fifth of the air and it's an oxidising agent. And the oxygen reacts with the vapour and it produces more heat, which sustains the burning process, and it produces usually some gaseous products. If we're burning, say, oil, then you'll make carbon dioxide and water. But not all of the molecules completely burn. You don't get complete combustion. And if you watch a diesel engine car or lorry driving down the road, when it accelerates hard, you'll see a cloud of black smoke coming out the back very often, especially if the engine's not set up right or if the diesel particulate filter's not working properly. That is partially burned hydrocarbons. Those are chains of, of carbon-rich molecules which have not been completely oxidised. And when a candle burns, it has an orange flame because in the flame there is partially burned bits of hydrocarbon from the wax which is, which is glowing an orangey-red colour because it's hot. And if you hold a piece of paper above the candle flame, it would get a, a, a layer of soot on it. So a lot of the time these things are black because the the material is partially burned 
hydrocarbons. Of course, some things, when they burn up, they do make funny colours. If you've got copper in something and you oxidise copper, copper oxide is black, but some of the other oxides of copper and some of the other compounds of copper are a nice green colour. Iron, when you have iron oxide, excuse me, iron oxide, that's a sort of rusty colour, or at different temperatures you get a blue colour. So some things, when they oxidise, do have pretty colours, but most things with carbon in them will leave a, a layer of soot, which is partially burnt hydrocarbons, and of course carbon is black. Thank you, Vasco. We'll sneak in a final one, I think. We've got enough time. Rhoda, thank you for holding on. Thank you. Uh, my question to the scientist is, you know, I have a problem. I have a, a sound in my head like showers. You know, showers falling on a tin roof. Hmm. I've got it all the time. Hmm. And sometimes it's louder, sometimes it's softer. What is the cause of it? It sounds to me um, like tinnitus. And mm. tinnitus is no. uh, something that occurs from within your ears and it's usually associated with occupational exposure or long, long-term exposure to very loud sounds which damages the organ of hearing called the cochlea and the damaged cochlea then leads to this auditory hallucination which is this raining sound or showering or ringing or crunching noises that people hear in their head usually it's on both sides of the head sometimes it can be on just one side of the head and if it is on just one side of the head it could be something else going on and sometimes a blood vessel can do this sometimes other things can cause these sounds so if you have got it just on one side you you should see a doctor Um, the best way to treat this actually is what people call pink or white noise it usually is most noticeable a tinnitus problem when you're in a very quiet environment and so if you put yourself somewhere where there's a low level of background noise a hissing noise or other sounds it masks the sound of the tinnitus and takes your mind off it and tinnitus gets worse when you worry about it and think about it if you ignore it and think about something else and distract yourself you tend to notice it much less and the symptoms get better so that would be my best advice a make sure that uh, a doctor has excluded some of the serious causes of tinnitus of which there are some the commonest cause though is age and loud noise exposure during your lifetime and if you do have a symptom see if you can distract yourself by not putting yourself in a completely quiet environment and not worry about it because the more you concentrate on it the worse it gets because your brain tunes into the sound and amplifies it more so it's best to try and ignore it if you can Darling. thanks Chris for a wonderful segment we'll do it again next week it's thanks been a so pleasure much. thanks Eusebius thanks everyone see you soon thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.